Section 10 of Autobiography of Benvenuto Cellini, Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by J. Martin. Autobiography of Benvenuto Cellini, Part 2, Section 10, Chapters 2 through 4. Chapter 45 When he had wound up this sermon, agreed upon beforehand with his darling Madame de Tomp, I bent one leg upon the ground and kissed his coat above the knee. Then I began my speech as follows. Sacred Majesty, I admit that all you have said is true. Only, in reply, I protest that my heart has ever been, by day and night, with all my vital forces, bent on serving you and executing your commands. If it appears to your majesty that my actions contradict these words, let your majesty be sure that Benvenuto was not at fault, but rather, possibly, my evil fate or adverse fortune, which has made me unworthy to serve the most admirable prince who ever blessed this earth. Therefore I crave your pardon. I was under the impression, however, that your majesty had given me silver for one statue only. Having no more at my disposal, I could not execute others. So, with the surplus which remained for use, I made this vase to show your majesty the grand style of the ancients. Perhaps you never had seen anything of the sort before. As for the salt cellar, I thought, if my memory does not betray me, that your majesty on one occasion ordered me to make it of your own accord. The conversation falling upon something of the kind which had been brought for your inspection, I showed you a model made by me in Italy. You, following the impulse of your own mind, only had a thousand golden ducats cut out for me to execute the piece withal, thanking me in addition for my hint. And what is more, I seem to remember that you commended me highly when it was completed. As regards the door, it was my impression that after we had chanced to speak about it at some time or other, your majesty gave orders to your chief secretary, Monsieur Valerios, from whom the order passed to Monsieur de Marmange and Monsieur de la Fale to this effect, that all these gentlemen should keep me going at the work, and see that I obtained the necessary funds. Without such commission, I should certainly not have been able to advance so great an undertaking on my own resource. As for the bronze heads, the pedestal of Jupiter, and other such-like things, I will begin by saying that I cast those heads upon my own account in order to become acquainted with French clays, of which, as a foreigner, I had no previous knowledge whatsoever. Unless I had made the experiment, I could not have set about casting larger works. Now, touching the pedestals, I have to say that I made them because I judged them necessary to the statues. Consequently, in all I have done, I have meant to act for the best, and at no point to swerve from your majesty's expressed wishes. It is indeed true that I set that huge colossus up to satisfy my own desire, paying for it from my own purse, even to the point which it has reached, because I thought that, you being the great king that you are, and I the trifling artist that I am, it was my duty to erect for your glory and my own a statue, the like of which the ancients never saw. 
Now at the last, having been taught that God is not inclined to make me worthy of so glorious a service, I beseech your majesty, instead of the noble recompense you had in mind to give me for my labors, bestow upon me only one small trifle of your favor, and therewith the leave to quit your kingdom. At this instant, if you condescend to my request, I shall return to Italy, always thanking God and your majesty for the happy hours which I have passed in serving you. Chapter 46 The king stretched forth his own hands and raised me very graciously. Then he told me that I ought to continue in his service, and that all I had done was right and pleasing to him. Turning to the lords in his company, he spoke these words precisely. I verily believe that a finer door could not be made for paradise itself. When he had ceased speaking, although his speech had been entirely in my favor, I again thanked him respectfully, for the heat of my indignation had not yet cooled down. His Majesty, feeling that I set too little store upon his unwanted and extraordinary condescension, commanded me with a great and terrible voice to hold my tongue unless I wanted to incur his wrath. Afterwards he added that he would drown me in gold, and that he gave me the leave I asked, and over and above the works he had commissioned he was very well satisfied with what I had done on my own account in the interval. I should never henceforth have any quarrels with him because he knew my character, and for my part I too ought to study the temper of his majesty as my duty required. I answered that I thanked God and his majesty for everything. Then I asked him to come and see how far I had advanced the great Colossus. So he came to my house, and I had the statue uncovered. He admired it extremely, and gave orders to his secretary to pay me all the money I had spent upon it, be the sum what it might, provided I wrote the bill out in my own hand. Then he departed, saying, Adieu, mon ami, which is a phrase not often used by kings. Chapter 47 After returning to his palace, he called the to mind the words I had spoken in our previous interview, some of which were so excessively humble, and others so proud and haughty, that they caused him no small irritation. He repeated a few of them in the presence of Madame de Tombe and Monsieur de Sapolo, a great baron of France. This man had always professed much friendship for me in the past, and certainly on that occasion he showed his good will after the French fashion, with great cleverness. It happened thus. The king, in the course of a long conversation, complained that the cardinal of Ferrara, to whose care he had entrusted me, never gave a thought to my affairs. So far as he was concerned, I might have decamped from the realm. Therefore he must certainly arrange for committing me to someone who would appreciate me better, because he did not want to run a further risk of losing me. At these words, Monsieur de St. Paul expressed his willingness to undertake the charge, saying that if the king appointed him my guardian, he would act so that I should never have the chance to leave the kingdom. The king replied that he was very well satisfied, if only St. Paul would explain the way in which he meant to manage me. Madame sat by with an air of sullen irritation, and St. Paul stood on his dignity, declining to answer the king's question. When the king repeated it, he said, 
to curry favour with Madame du Tonk. I would hang that Benvenuto of yours by the neck, and thus you would keep him for ever in your kingdom. She broke into a fit of laughter, protesting that I richly deserved it. The king, to keep them company, began to laugh, and said he had no objection to St. Paul hanging me, if he could first produce my equal in the arts, and although I had not earned such a fate, he gave full liberty and license. In this way that day ended, and I came off safe and sound, for which may God be praised and thanked. Chapter 48 the king had now made peace with the emperor, but not with the English, and these devils were keeping us in constant agitation. His majesty had therefore other things than pleasure to attend to. He ordered Piero Strozzi to go with ships of war into the English waters, but this was a very difficult undertaking, even for that great commander, without a paragon in his time in the art of war, and also without a paragon in his misfortunes. Several months passed without my receiving money or commissions. Accordingly, I dismissed my workpeople with the exception of the two Italians whom I set to making two big vases out of my own silver, for these men could not work in bronze. After they had finished these, I took them to a city which belonged to the Queen of Navarre. It is called Argentana and is distant several days' journey from Paris. On arriving at this place, I found that the king was indisposed, and the cardinal of Ferrara told his majesty that I was come. He made no answer, which obliged me to stay several days kicking my heels. Of a truth, I never was more uncomfortable in my life, but at last I presented myself one evening, and offered the two vases for the king's inspection. He was excessively delighted, and when I saw him in good humor, I begged His Majesty to grant me the favor of permitting me to travel into Italy. I would leave the seven months of my salary which were due, and His Majesty might condescend to pay me when I required money for my return journey. I entreated him to grant this petition, seeing that the times were more for fighting than for making statues. Moreover, His Majesty had allowed a similar license to Bologna the painter, wherefore I humbly begged him to concede the same to me. While I was uttering these words, the king kept gazing intently on the vases, and from time to time shot a terrible glance at me. Nevertheless, I went on praying to the best of my ability that he would favor my petition. All of a sudden he rose angrily from his seat and said to me in Italian, Benvenuto, you are a great fool. Take these vases back to Paris. I want to have them gilt. Without making any other answer, he then departed. I went up to the Cardinal of Ferrara, who was present, and besought him, since he had already conferred upon me the great benefit of freeing me from prison in Rome, with many other besides, to do me this one favor more of procuring for me leave to travel into Italy. He answered that he should be very glad to do his best to gratify me in this matter. I might leave it without further thought to him, and even if I chose might set off at once, because he would act for the best in my interest with the king. I told the cardinal that since I was aware his majesty had put me under the protection of his most reverend lordship, if he gave me leave, I felt ready to depart, and promised to return upon the smallest hint from his reverence. 
the cardinal then bade me go back to paris and wait there eight days during which time he would procure the king's license for me if his majesty refused to let me go he would without fail inform me but if i received no letters that would be a sign that i might set off with an easy mind chapter forty nine i obeyed the cardinal and returned to paris where i made excellent cases for my three silver vases after the lapse of twenty days i began my preparations and packed the three vases upon a mule this animal had been lent me for the journey to lyon by the bishop of pavia who was now once more installed in my castle then i departed in my evil hour together with signor ippolito gongaza at that time in the pay of the king and also in the service of the count goletta de marandola some other gentlemen of the said count went with us as well as leonardo tadaldi our fellow citizen of florence i made ascanio and pagolo guardians of my castle and all my property including two little vases which were only just begun those i left behind in order that the two young men might not be idle I had lived very handsomely in Paris, and therefore there was a large amount of costly household furniture. The whole value of these effects exceeded fifteen hundred crowns. I bade Ascania remember what great benefits I had bestowed upon him, and that up to the present he had been a mere thoughtless lad. The time was now come for him to show the prudence of a man. Therefore I thought fit to leave him in the custody of all my goods, as also of my honor. If he had the least thing to complain of from those brutes of Frenchmen, he was to let me hear at once, because I would take post and fly from any place in which I found myself, not only to discharge the great obligations under which I lay to that good king, but also to defend my honor. Ascanio replied with the tears of a thief and hypocrite, I have never known a father better than you are, and all things which a good son is bound to perform for a good father will I ever do for you. So then I took my departure, attended by a servant and a little French lad. It was past noon when some of the king's treasurers, by no means friends of mine, made a visit to my castle. The rascally fellows began by saying that I had gone off with the king's silver and told Mr. Guido and the Bishop of Pavia to send at once off after his majesty's vases. If not, they would themselves dispatch a messenger to get them back and do me some great mischief. The bishop and Mr. Guido were much more frightened than was necessary, so they sent that traitor Ascanio by the post off on the spot. He made his appearance before me at about midnight. I had not been able to sleep and kept revolving thoughts to the following effect. In whose hands have I left my property, my castle? Oh, what a fate is this of mine, which forces me to take this journey. May God grant only that the cardinal is not of one mind with Madame de Tomp, who has nothing else so much at heart as to make me lose the grace of that good king. Chapter 50 While I was thus dismally debating with myself, I heard Ascanio calling me. On the instant I jumped out of bed and asked if he brought good or evil tidings. The knave answered, They are good news I bring, but you must only send back those three vases, 
for the rascally treasurers keep shouting, Stop, thief! So the bishop and Mr. Guido say that you must absolutely send them back. For the rest you need have no anxiety, but may pursue your journey with a light heart. I handed over the vases immediately, two of them being my own property, together with the silver and much else besides. I had meant to take them to the Cardinal of Ferraris Abbey at Lyon, for, though people accused me of wanting to carry them into Italy, everybody knows quite well that it is impossible to export money, gold, or silver from France without special license. Consider, therefore, whether I could have crossed the frontier with these three great vases, which, together with their cases, were a whole mule's burden. It is certainly true that, since these articles were of great value and the highest beauty, I felt uneasiness in case the king should die, and I had lately left him in a very bad state of health. Therefore I said to myself, If such an accident should happen, having these things in the keeping of the cardinal, I shall not lose them. Well, to cut the story short, I sent back the mule with the vases and other things of importance, then, upon the following morning, I travelled forward with the company I have already mentioned, nor could I, through the whole journey, refrain from sighing and weeping. Sometimes, however, I consoled myself with God by saying, Lord God, before whose eyes the truth lies open, Thou knowest that my object in this journey is only to carry alms to six poor miserable virgins and their mother, my own sister. They have indeed their father, but he is very old and gains nothing by his trade. I fear, therefore, lest they might too easily take to a bad course of life. Since then I am performing a true act of piety. I look to thy majesty for aid and counsel. This was all the recreation I enjoyed upon my forward journey. We were one day distant from Lyon, and it was close upon the hour of twenty-two, when the heavens began to thunder with sharp rattling claps, although the sky was quite clear at the time. I was riding a crossbow shot before my comrades. After the thunder the heavens made a noise so great and horrible that I thought the last day had come, so I reined in for a moment while a shower of hail began to fall without a drop of water. A first hail was somewhat larger than pellets from a pop-gun, and when these struck me they hurt considerably. Little by little it increased in size until the stones might be compared to balls from a crossbow. My horse became restive with fright, so I wheeled round and returned at a gallop to where I found my comrades taking refuge in a fir-wood. The hail now grew to the size of big lemons. I began to sing a misery, and while I was devoutly uttering this psalm to God, there fell a stone so huge that it smashed the thick branches of the pine under which I had retired for safety. Another of the hailstones hit my horse upon the head and almost stunned him. One struck me also, but not directly, else it would have killed me. In like manner, poor old Leonardo Tadaldi, who, like me, was kneeling on the ground, received so shrewd a blow that he fell groveling upon all fours. 
When I saw that the furbow offered no protection, and that I ought to act as well as to intone my miseries, I began at once to wrap my mantle round my head. At the same time I cried to Leonardo, who was shrieking for succor, Jesus, Jesus, that Jesus would help him if he helped himself. I had more trouble in looking after this man's safety than my own. The storm raged for some while, but at last it stopped, and we, who were pounded black and blue, scrambled as well as we could upon our horses. Pursuing the way to our lodging for the night, we showed our scratches and bruises to each other, but about a mile further on we came upon a scene of devastation which surpassed what we had suffered, and defies description. All the trees were stripped of their leaves and shattered. The beasts in the field lay dead. Many of the herdsmen had also been killed. We observed large quantities of hailstones which could not have been grasped with two hands. Feeling then that we had come well out of a great peril, we acknowledged that our prayers to God and Miserays had helped us more than we could have helped ourselves. Returning thanks to God, therefore, we entered Lyon in the course of the next day, and tarried there eight days. At the end of this time, being refreshed in strength and spirit, we resumed our journey, and passed the mountains without mishap. On the other side I bought a little pony, because the baggage which I carried had somewhat overtired my horses. End of section 10